We've been about this work, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, shared through the voices of a white woman and a black man. We bring lived experiences. We have pursued DNI progress for most of our professional lives. We use Crazy and the King to cover news, tips from colleagues, and host incredible guests. Listeners, count on Julie and I to transparently drive the conversation. We thank you for rocking with us. Check it. Julie, kick off the show. Welcome to Crazy and the King. Guess who's at an undisclosed location? (laughs) For once, it's not me. For once, it's not you. (laughs) It is me. And let me tell you, it it was almost trees for a background. but we're going to make this thing work. We are absolutely excited about today's conversation. I feel good about the summer. I got to tell you, honestly, I'm even closer. I take a lot of business trips. Well, not as many since we've been in COVID, mm-hmm. but I still take business trips every once in a while. But I think I've convinced the family that we're going to hit the beach in August. Jay, nice. let me tell you something. If we hit the beach in August, I swear to the most high, we not record. I'm not taking any equipment with me. Deal. I promise I am going to relax. Is that all right? Yes. You just got to tell me so we can get something in the can. I got you back. We can put back. something in the can. Yeah. All right, got it. So absolutely. We're gonna have a little bit of we're gonna have a little bit of controversy today. I, I know it may. It, listen, doing this work is unsettling for a number of people. I have over and over and over again found moments where I could be transparent and share with our listeners how I'm feeling, struggling, growing, and a whole host of other descriptive um, of words. And I think today is going to be one of those days. But before I get into it, I just need to make sure, are you good? Because I think that you are traveling as well. Yeah, and I actually just ran back in the door so we could record this podcast to spend some time with my my oldest kiddos before she heads off to Budapest in August for the semester. <sighs> Breathing. Budapest. So, yeah, yep, she'll be doing her last uh, summer or her last semester there. She graduates a semester early and um, she submitted her first application to grad school yesterday. So, it was nice to see her and celebrate that. And but I'm super excited. We have an awesome guest today. I'm happy to see your face. Happy to see you getting out and about a little bit more out of the house. Um, so yeah, I'm good. Absolutely awesome. So let's talk about a couple of stories. So I found over on the Broad Street newsletter Emma Hinchcliffe, and she actually does a very very good newsletter. Her newsletter, again, the Broad Street newsletter, it really focuses on women, uh, women entrepreneurs, women across industry, women agnostically in different positions, if you will, disciplines. Um, She does an incredible job of just curating daily reading content, keeping people connected to what's happening uh, for that group of power players. And she asked a question this week in her newsletter. And the question was, Jay, what are the consequences of bias with regard to patents? Now, this is going to be very okay. interesting because when we bring our guest in later, maybe our guest can contribute to the conversation, um, you know, that we are, are going to briefly have. But but she asked that question, what, what's the consequence of the bias of patents? And 
bottom line is we she she quoted in her her newsletter um a study done by the American Association for the Advancement of Science and it says who do we invent for mm-hmm. and patents typically by women focus more on women's health no surprise there but the other piece to that is few women get to event because the study pointed out that the market has missed out on some 6,500 opportunities uh, in biomedicine over the last 30 years. And that's just biomedicine. Let me say it in a different way. I I tried to say it in a way that was a little academic and spirited (laughs) and smart. But the bottom line is men are still receiving more patents in the healthcare space than women while men are not necessarily developing technology, solutions, advancements, service offerings for women. Women do more of that for women. They know the audience, and yet they're being overlooked. So disappointing. So let me make sure I understand, because there's a lot of things that are happening, right? We know that there's a, a, a gender gap in patent submission and patent granting, for women's healthcare, there are very few women that are contributing right now as inventors to the products and services and medicines that women use. Is that a, is that accurate? Slight tweak. Okay. The women are inventing, but they're not receiving the patents. The oh. patents are going to the men. So if five women submit an idea or go after a solution, five uh, men submit an idea or go after a solution, the men more often than the women are receiving the patents to continue to move forward. To to oversee our bodies. That's always a great conversation that uh, I am very sure a guest will be interested in. Um, and, And not something, again, you just always bring sort of this unique presence to our pod. Nothing I've ever even thought about, right? But I think it's just so related to everything that we're, seeing in healthcare inequity and, and all the things that we're going to talk w- about with our guests. Um, on the flip side, I, I have what I think is interesting and cool. I haven't quite figured out how it works yet, but I was on Twitter a couple of days ago and MasterCard, um, they had you know, a promoted tweet and they are now allowing um, non-binary and transgender individuals to use their name of identification or their name of choice on their credit card. So if I'm someone who is transgender, my legal name is John Smith, my identification that I go by as a transgender woman is Jane Smith, I can now have Jane Smith on my credit card, which obviously will make point of sale going out, anytime you're going to swipe or tap that card, a much more relaxing and less anxiety provoking instance for transgender and and non-binary people. Thought it was pretty cool coming out in pride. Yeah, but I mean, who knew? Because because I'm thinking that that's already something that's done. Yes, but it's definitely not. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you go, you get a credit card because you go do your credit check and automatically the name they put on there is is your legal name. Um, But now at MasterCard, you have the option to use your choice of identification name. Hmm. 
Interesting. Well, yeah, speaking of the, the LGBTQ community, uh, I'm sorry, you want to say something else on that? No, there are still things like process things. I, I, I want to, I would love to actually get someone for a MasterCard on the show to just talk through the technical piece of doing that. Um, because I would like to see more employers that, that you and I work with be more conscientious of transgender transitions during or after employment. And Berkeley Labs has done that really well. Um, and then this is kind of another example of how to take what is a really great idea and actually implement it into something that is something that people will authentically use and benefit from. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I need to look for that. I'm actually going to make a note. I want to see that and I'm going to see if I can do some research on you know, MasterCard and maybe some of the other industries where that actually is something that should be adopted. That's yeah. um, interesting. You know where I thought you were going to go with that. I thought you were going to go with MasterCards allowing them to put their pronoun on the card. Oh, yep. Nope. That's where I thought even you were cooler. Go. Just their name. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it yeah. it's it's just a it's something that I think just seems so minor to you and I as as cisgender heterosexuals. Um and is so impactful just for everyday things you do, like making purchases to individuals who are non-binary and transgender. Very thoughtful. And I've been impressed with a lot of MasterCard's work in the DEIB space in general. And I think that this is a this is a product of them being more inclusive from an employer perspective because we're starting to see solutions come out for um, you know under underrepresented groups um in, in their employee populations got it well like i said speaking uh in reference to the lgbtq community this might be the controversy alert and so um i'm not going to talk about the nfl uh player carl nasib that came out this week uh for the las vegas raiders i thought that that was a beautiful announcement i love it awesome the fact that, yeah, I just thought it was so powerful to just simply kind of reiterate, you know, what people like myself and so many others have said over and over and over again. We'd love to get to the place where we don't have to be the first, where we don't have to yep. make these types of announcements and pronouncements, if you will, these these big grand statements just to be who we who we are. Uh, so it's not the controversy around, uh, well, it's not the piece around Carl Nassib. My controversy might be around um, New Zealand's Olympics. And so okay. I don't know if you saw this week, but they uh, have a weightlifter by the name of Laurel Hubbard. Uh, and Laurel Hubbard is going to be the first transgender athlete to compete at the Olympic Games. Um, my issue, my challenge is that Laurel Hubbard, up until 2013, competed as a man. Yes. Now going to be competing in the women's category. This goes back to stories that we did, I believe in 2019 around Castor yeah. Simeon. Mm -hmm. uh, we've talked about high school uh, transgender uh, individuals competing in, in sport. And I had mm -hmm. an opinion there. This one is going to be different because this is where I feel like, you know, when you are a full grown adult male to me you bring something to that conversation that we cannot discount 
I think at 12, 13, we're still forming. And even still, you're bringing something to that conversation. But I think as a full grown man, if you're competing with other men up until eight years ago, and now you want to go and compete against women, I just don't, I'm not for that one. I, I really, really am frowning on that decision. What say you? Um, so I always try to think of the whole versus the one, right? Obviously, okay. And I, I, like, I am unprepared for this conversation. Let's start there. Um, because I don't know how to get out exactly the way that I feel. Cause I, I don't know if I'm sure how I feel. I think that there are some in this individual case, the likelihood, and remember, I'm not a doctor, so this is not medically sound guidance. Um, there may be likely a competitive advantage to a transgender female competing in a female sport at that level. I, I think I can acknowledge that and say that that exists, right? So Laurel may have and likely does have a, a physical advantage when competing in that space. Caster Semenia, on the other hand, is biologically female, but she oh, yeah, has... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. I'm, I'm sorry. You know I don't mean to cut you off. No, I, go I ahead. Don't, I, 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 I probably shouldn't have said those other... <laughs> yeah, I, I probably shouldn't have said those other two stories because they're, all, they're automatically different than what we are doing right here. So, yeah. so I just want to yes. be clear so, that I don't, I am not in that camp who feels like Casper is transgender in any way. Yes. Cause she is, she is biologically female and she competes as a woman. Um, Absolutely. And that was more a story about racism than her gender. Um, but that being said, when I'm thinking about how legislators and groups, conservative groups, evangelical groups, across this country are attacking who are causing physical and emotional trauma to young transgender women, right? That no one's caring about the kid who's going to compete in sports who is a transgender male because there's no advantage, you know, no competitive advantage. So this is really about attacking a group of uh, a group of young transgender women who will commit suicide, who will not get access to medical treatment, who will not have appropriate transition services, who will be booted out of their homes because these kind of stories give these legislators and these evangelical groups like their reason, right? So pretty soon, all your kids, all your young girls are not going to be able to compete because these guys who are pretending to be transgender are going to come and take their spaces. They're not going to get access at school. They're not going to get access at college. And, and that's like, it's a, it's a, not a real problem, right? This case is, is hard because you're competing at the Olympic level. Physiology may provide an advantage, you know, I, I don't know what kind of drug she takes for her transition or anything like that. For me, and I'll say this blanketly, I'm always going to support the person in front of us that's transgender doing the things that are associated with their gender identity. 
because I know that any fuel we give to others will result in lasting damage to a population of kids that we will never, ever know. And so, well, I, I can't like exactly, I don't know if that's well stated, but that's how I feel. There we go. I said it. Took me five yeah, minutes. No, I think, it out. Yeah, it took a minute, but I think that's what's important because I think that that, that honesty and that transparency draws other individuals in that are listening and challenges them to wrestle with what it means to be human. And that's really mm -hmm. what I want. I want them to also wrestle with what it means to be human, because I could see uh, Laurel Hubbard right here on the street, in the local store, in a restaurant, in a church, uh, in, in any place. And I'm absolutely going to advocate for them, for yes. her. I'm absolutely going to advocate. And so that's a piece where I, I struggle. And, mm -hmm. and like you, I'm still, you know, while I may not be watching the Olympics, I'll still be you know, clapping. I'm glad that New Zealand is first. I'm glad that she gets that opportunity uh, to to compete at that extremely high, dedicated level. I just wonder if, you know, through all of this, will will they put an asterisk by her name yeah. at the end we of her know. result, whatever that result is? Will, will there be an asterisk? Will there be some subtext, some sort of title to suggest that, you know, in addition to the fact that she's transgender? Will will there be something? Um, and you raise such an extremely good point because while I'm commenting on it here as an adult at this level, the ramifications do roll downhill. Uh, and so I yeah. so appreciate you as always grounding me, challenging me, grounding me at the same time, um, allowing me to grow and, and move into the conversation. So listen, thank you That's so much. Do I appreciate it. Absolutely. So uh, let's see our, our quote for the week, uh, because I want to get into our guest. We've took it, yes. taken. Did I just say took it? <laughs> and I haven't even take. I haven't even like sipped on anything. I, wow. I said took it. Uh, OK, got it. But, anyway, yeah, and, and it listen, for those of you out there listening, do not ever think that Torin is like terrible with his grammar. He just sometimes, <laughs> you know, faux pas. Anyway, uh, but when you're disabled, your body stops belonging to only you. This is the game, the rules of our ableist world. It's a quote by Ariana Faulkner. She's a disabled writer from Buffalo, New York. I put the link in the, the show notes and she wrote a beautiful article around her challenge of sex, being disabled, mm -hmm. navigating life. She starts the story when she's like 12 or 13. Just beautiful story. And how she's seen, not seen. Yep. Does her body really belong to her? How is she being infantilized? It, yep. it was just an incredible read. So I just lifted it out. It wasn't perfect. necessarily a quote, but I just thought it was so incredibly perfect. Listen, let's do our job by that. And then let's rock with our guest, Mr. Franz Bertard. Okay, okay, real quick. Job Vite is taking you on a TA road trip all summer long during the Summer to Evolve road trip. That was a little bit redundant, but the bottom line is they are rocking this eight-week series of educational content designed specifically for TA and recruiting professionals just like you and I. Each and every week, there'll be three short sessions aimed at helping you to hone your skills, helping you to improve existing processes and inspire new ideas from some of the greatest minds in TA. 
You'll explore topics such as building talent pools to support rapid hiring, the TA metrics driving business outcomes, and leveraging recruitment technology to help you find and hire top talent faster. Gotta quickly mention, great prizes, fun road trip games, and exciting surprises. You can get all of that if you start mapping out your road trip journey today at jobvite.com forward slash summer. Again, that is jobvite.com forward slash summer. All right. Welcome back. So I am so excited. Thanks to the team over at Facebook Workplace um, who Woo-hoo. made this amazing introduction for us. And I think I actually said this morning to my sister-in-law, I think that Franz has the longest title of any title I've ever said. So we are going to welcome Franz Bertad, who is the Administrative Director, Disease Center Operation Operations of the Lowe Center for the Thoracic Oncology and the Center for Cancer Therapeutic Innovation at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Welcome to the show, Franz. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And that was perfect. You, you got all the titles there. <laughs> all yeah, the that, titles. Thing is, that thing is long for real. Like, did you have any say whatsoever in, you know, like when they put the offer letter in front of you and they slid that joke across the table or digitally slid it into your inbox? Like, did you look at that email and say, now, wait a minute, my title is like 89 characters long. Uh, did, or, or did you work that out? Did, what, what happened there? I was trying to get more titles. Put more. On I was like, you know, let's see, Do let's it. get some some more stripes and some stars, like an admiral, you know. Tell us about that. <laughs> Tell us about that. Like, what did we miss, you know, in that introduction? Because we absolutely know um, that you are a person who's dedicated to the DNI space, healthcare strategy. Uh, you consider yourself to be an operations leader. You're also an adjunct professor. What did we miss in the introduction? Uh, I have a three and a half year old daughter at home, so mm-hmm. I'm a father. Okay. A black father, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I, I like to qualify because there's, there's, I think, some some myths out there. Preach. Um, uh, uh, my family's Haitian. Uh, grew up between Brooklyn, New York, and and um, and here in Massachusetts. Living in Boston. Um, what else? I cook. Uh, I do my daughter's hair. What else do you need? Oh, Come wow. on, man. Come man, on, man. you're selling yeah, it. See, do it. <laughs> Jay, let me, let me tell you, it, it, you know, if, if this chair that I wasn't sitting on, you know, mom's chair has got, it need a little WD-40 on it, but I would sit back in the chair and just let them keep on going because I love how you're dropping it. And, you know, you start with something uh, very interesting. You, you slid it in. Genuinely, you said there are a lot of myths out there. And, and does that in any way impact how you show up and do the work that you do for the Dana-Farber Center or in some of the other, you know, places where you show up? Certainly, certainly. I think, you know, when people think about Black men and, and certainly in, in, in a place like Dana-Farber, um, candidly, predominantly white space, certainly at leadership, at the leadership level. So I'm going into these rooms, I'm going into these conference rooms or these Zoom rooms now, right? It's all virtual, uh, most of it. And um I'm the only one or one of few that look like myself. And I, I carry that. It was the same feeling of going to a predominantly white university. I went to Boston College. 
um, and kind of walking through these and living through these different spaces in my personal life and my professional life um, of knowing I'm going to be one of none or one of few. And it's you, you almost carry yourself a certain way. And so when I talk about being a father or being a healthcare administrator, um, I'm carrying myself in a certain way because for a lot of people, when they see one or their their experiences with a few, um, that's going to end up speaking for the entirety of the demographic, fortunately and unfortunately, right? Um, that's a little bit of a burden to bear when when you're forced to speak uh, for an entire race, um, and and so I, I take that I don't take it lightly. Um, in how I, I bring myself. So I try to bring my full self, right? Um, um, in any space, in any space that I'm in. So when we, we got a chance to chat before you joined the show, and I was very interested and curious. You talked about, you know, you have your BA in biology and philosophy. And then, right, you start that transition into public health with your master's and, and now the work that you do. So what about your journey caused that change and that shift in how you wanted to create impact in, in your career? Oh, that's a good question. I, so a lot of people, especially the biology and philosophy, they're like, those are the two different ends of the spectrum, right? One is very much like, this and then this happens like it's very you know cause and effect and the other is like well what is cause what is effect it's a little <laughs> bit more flowery right the the philosophy piece you're, you're thinking about it and the way i always looked at it was how do i develop a philosophy of myself and how uh what i want out of life that's going to benefit and use biology or the science as a tool i look at look at this past pandemic where you saw the convergence of so many different things, of science, of people's lived experiences, of what does, uh, how does it impact racism? And so when you look at all that, it almost makes sense that I would have went into public health. This idea of how can we use how we communicate with people? How do we get people to think about health? How do we change the landscapes around us to provide everyone with equitable health care. Um, and, and that for me, that's it, right? My, the, the niche I'm in or, or kind of the functional area might be oncology. It's cancer, but it's a public health service. I just want to give equitable cancer care or enable that for everyone. Um, but whether it's the vaccine or it's um, behavioral health, mental health, I think uh, you can look at how we do healthcare, certainly in this country, always from a, or it should be always from a public health perspective, but that's not the case all the time. Franz, you know, I know during the pandemic, uh, when when some of the data data started to trickle out, you know, we started to see um, the, um, the inordinate amount of food deserts in black and brown neighborhoods. We started to see some of the disparity in the numbers around who was being serviced and supported, who was perhaps dying from a percentage wise, who was being largely impacted. We, of course, saw data around frontline workers and, you know, whether they were able to continue to work, not work. We just saw all types of data going back to the healthcare space, particularly as it relates to oncology. Were there any surprises in the data 
that surfaced through the pandemic that may not have been present prior to? Um, I'm going to say no. Okay. Uh, we, I think what we saw and that came out of the pandemic as a result of the pandemic or what was illuminated by the pandemic were things that we've known all along. Um, I think for a very long time, public health and health care were, were kept quite separate. You know, public health was a good, something that you did, tried to do the greatest amount for the greatest amount of the population. Health care was the business of health care. Uh, people going into a hospital, right, the, the brick and mortar, receiving their care, there's a cost to that, the institution gets paid physicians or, or clinicians get paid and then we kind of go down that road and the bring of the two of saying well if everyone who's receiving health care all look the same it's a certain demographic that are continually getting the the high end of health care then what are we actually doing because the, the pandemic hits and <clears throat> you see these grave disparities and the question now is how could we have avoided that happening, right? The end result of the pandemic was death. That was the, that, that's the finality of it, was COVID causing death and, and disproportionate amount to black and brown people, indigenous people in this country. That, that, that was where, that's, that's what we, we continue to see, right? Because I, I always want to say like, we ain't out of this yet, right? I think people are still, their lived experiences, people's lives are still being upended. But um, the the food insecurities, the food deserts, um, the transportation, how people got to their frontline jobs, what did those frontline workers look like? And the reason why we call it like a system, because it's like chess pieces. All of this was put into place and continues to be perpetuated going forward. So I would say, no, we're not surprised by it. I'm almost surprised at how many people were surprised that there were disparities and how we could have easily predicted that there would be inequities in the vaccination because the system continues to work in the way that it always has. Um, how we try to transform that in the front end, right? If we thought about the, the vaccine equity before we thought about the vaccine, I think we would be looking at things totally different. Um, so it, it's certainly something that like we got to we got to keep doing. We got to keep pushing forward with it. Jade, let me before you come in, I want to go back to something you said, the vaccine equity before we thought about the vaccine. Can you elaborate on that? For sure. It, it we we've we have this kind of uh supply and demand mentality with everything we do, right? It's, it's kind of how all industries are driven. And so we knew that if there's a scarcity, right, a small number of vaccines that are being developed that are coming up, like who's going to get those first? Who's going to get the access to the places that get the vaccine first? And I think, and I was lucky, and, and I speak from a very privileged perspective, like I got my first dose in January. Like I know that I'm I'm very privileged, and that's not the case for a lot of people, um, and certainly for a lot of people that look like me. And I think that if we thought about how we rolled it out in the communities in which we put it in, how we um, 
implemented that the the vaccine distribution, um, I think I think it would have been totally different. We if we thought about vaccine um, communication before we thought about the the vaccine, how we talk about the vaccine, like there's so much disinformation out there. Um, that's why you still have people like I'm I'm gonna wait and see. You know, and people often talk about the historical context of racism in medicine, which is like the historical context and the contemporary, what's still happening these days, right? Super important. Um, but that's not the only reason why, you know, certain demographics don't want to receive the vaccine. And we have to be able to address um, kind of all of these these factors. It's the vaccine hesitancy is often put on the victim of of it all like it's it's them who don't want to get the vaccine and i'm like well oh, we need to do a better job of of bringing the vaccine to them right it, it can't always be if you build it they will come if you develop the vaccine they will get it i'm like that's that's not how it really works yeah and i think that goes to really what i so enjoyed chatting with you about yesterday is because of the way that you look at healthcare, right? You have that public health background. You have, um, you, you teach strategy, healthcare strategy at Boston University, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But you also have this other unique layer of that you run operations, you know how finance works, you know how personnel and HR works, plus you know how the clinics operator or clinical operations. How does that help you at Dana-Farber drive a conversation about DEIB and inclusion for better health outcomes, you know, better retention, better whatever it is that you're thinking about cultures, and then get that thought process, that buy-in to a place where you can get it implemented and executed on? That's an awesome question. So um, I'm a black man. Let's just, we'll, we'll throw that <laughs> out there. And when we're, we're talking about healthcare and, and we're talking about, uh, you know, DIB and, and specifically, and when we're talking about how do we create this inclusive environment for our patients of color, um, my sister was a patient at, at, at Dana-Farber, my eldest sister passed away from triple negative breast cancer. Um, when when I was, so I, I have this unique perspective of having been the caregiver at every single appointment with her and in a leadership role in the organization. And, and Julie, we spoke about this a little bit where selfishly, when I'm pushing and driving and they're like, Franz, why are you so passionate about, about diversity, inclusion, equity, belong? Why do you want to do this? Why, why do you go so hard with this? So because it's about survival for me. This isn't, everybody knows the business case. Better outcomes for teams and, and more innovation and, and creativity, all of those things. But then when I say me as a uh, staff member, or me as a caregiver for a, a, a patient, like it's about survival. If we know the data, if we know the literature that tells us um, cultural concordance between clinicians, you know, physicians and their patients, physicians of color tend to do better with, uh, phys uh, with patients of color tend to have better outcomes and do better if they're clinicians 
are a person of color or they speak the same language or they understand elements of their their cultures I'm like that's a that's a win i'm like that is s small potatoes I'm like that's what we should go after you know i'm not asking for a million dollars to drive this particular strategy i'm asking for more black oncologists because what the data tells us, what the literature tells us, what our own patients are telling us is like, we could do better. We could do better in terms of their lives and their livelihoods if we did this one thing. And so again, for me, when I think about um, belonging and as a staff member, you, you're, we're trying to create this space and this place where you feel like you can bring your full self. We, we, I wanna take that same feeling and, and transfer that to patients. Imagine, you know, my sister, black woman, diagnosed at 39 years old, passed away at 40. And she's at the most sensitive and, and probably the, the most difficult point in her life. And, and the thought of her not being able to bring her full self in the most susceptible, emotionally susceptible point in her life that to me, it kind of devastates me, right? To think like that, as we often talk about it from the staff perspective, but when we think about it from that clinical or that patient perspective, if they can't bring their full self, like then we're only partially gonna heal them, if if that's possible, right? Like we, that that's only half the cure if they can't bring their their full self to be cared for. Yeah, so much, um, so much said in that, um, and I just want to say sorry about hearing. Uh, of that particular loss, the loss Appreciate of a sibling, that. always, um, yeah, always special. So I, I think about, you know, the work that my dear friend Andre Blackman is doing over at Onboard Health. Um, do you by chance know Andre Blackman? I don't. But okay, I'm, no worry. So I'll I make sure to, to do an introduction, you. you know, but but that's what they're doing over at Onboard Health. They're really working hard to make sure that the healthcare space is inclusive in its representation because we have enough data to refer to that echoes what you just said a moment ago that you know black and brown patients patients from other ethnicities other communities particularly those communities that are often overlooked and underserved they will be better served if there is a representative from their community if there is a connection point a feeder a conduit from their community what type of resistance are you receiving, if any? You may not be receiving any, but as a person who is operating in the DNI space, a person who handles operations, that means mm -hmm. you move through the entire franchise. What what type of resistance are you seeing from your colleagues uh, as it relates to that prodding, that agitation for them to be more inclusive? For sure, I think um, it's not resistance in the sense of like, we're not going to do it or we don't want to do it. It's the sense of urgency, which for me is always going to feel like resistance, right? I think it, uh, it might've been Baldwin who's talking about progress. And he said, look, my nephew asked for progress. His grandfather asked for progress. Like how long do we wait? And it's that feeling of anyone to tell me like, oh, we can do this next year. I'm like, uh-uh, there'll be another George Floyd by that time. We need to, we can do this in six months. I'm like, uh uh, because this is that, that feeling like we, the, the drive for this is so personal for me. You almost want to, some, a transference of that, that fire 
to your own colleagues. Um, and, and that's what oftentimes I think drives leaders, especially leaders who is, um, who don't look like me, who, are, who might not be from marginalized or minoritized communities. It, when there is a, a personal stake or there's a personal story, something that uh, uh, emotionally taps them, I think that's when that kind of that, that shift of energy happens. Um, but it's that it's that that sense of urgency that I think often is what I come up against and in what is very hard for me to kind of swallow. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll I'll state that in the last year things have felt totally different, even within my organization. And I'm very candid with a lot of our uh, leaders. I think I've been afforded that kind of ability to be able to speak in that way. Um, but after uh, George Floyd was murdered, like many organizations out there, healthcare and non-healthcare alike, people putting up black boxes on their Instagram, um, I think people making statements and, and, and promises and you know X millions of dollars invested in, in black and brown communities. Um, our appetite for the conversation, I think, has shifted in a way that I, I most never expected which I'm, I'm happy about. But again, if someone were to ask me, like, wow, we're talking so much about this. Like, isn't that incredible? And I'm like, is that enough for you? Is that enough progress? And then I would, I, it begs me to, to ask them to define progress for me, because for people who have been feeling this, you know, um, for centuries, no amount of progress unless we move mountains, is going to feel like enough. So beautifully stated. And something I was thinking about when we were, I was prepping for this interview is two things. One, you know, the the Department of Labor for a long time, and I don't know if this is still in place, but the Department of Labor um, allowed hospitals who provided or who took TRICARE as insurance, veterans insurance, were allowed to be exempted from most of the affirmative action requirements under the the Department of Labor and the Office of Federal Contractor Compliance. And that's, I think that's also one of the problems, right, is we continue to allow the can to be pushed down because we have an immediate need to have physicians and nurses and we have that shortage. We're not requiring our organizations, our government's not requiring our healthcare system to build the pipeline, to build the processes, to build the systems that are going to build teams that fundamentally save and change the way healthcare is is not just developed, but also delivered in this country. I think one of the things that that caught me in in that conversation is how do we get our orgs to take it seriously and to put it in place? And especially from a healthcare perspective, right? We know that healthcare inequities start years before they get in front of that that doctor that's you know taking care of them at Dana Farber, we talked you know a couple of weeks ago. I did a, a 
great conversation with the multi-regional clinical trial team out of Brigham and Women's about ableism and and disability um, being an auto exclusion from clinical trials. And so as a as a strategy guy, right, if you could think about for the layperson, right, if you're working at a pharmaceutical, if you're working at a biopharma, if you're in government, right, where are kind of the systemic places that we need to look at as, as leaders in, in organizations that want to save lives, that want to develop medicine, that want to be inclusive to, to get that standardization put in place and, and to really start thinking about, we call it building for permanence, right? How do we get our healthcare system to stop being kind of that short term I think in a lot of the ways when we think about health inequities, to think about it from the beginning of the development. Um, I almost think of, uh, we, we almost have to approach health equity uh, and social justice within health as a, a, a lens, right? As this decoder ring uh, versus what we often do is it's a supplement. We're trying to plug it in it's like the USB drive. We'll just plug it into the system that already exists. Like that's not going to work because we know that this system is not working the way, I, I was going to say the way it should, but actually it's working exactly the way it was designed. But I think uh, of considering how do we transform the entire system and, and why people use words like dismantle. It's like take apart what's already there so we can build something better. Um, but it has to be this this lens so that when we look at whether it's hiring, you're hiring a new physician, you're hiring pharmacy techs, you're hiring pharmacists, nurses, that we're applying this lens and we're saying, who's missing? Not if anyone's missing. We know, we know that the way systemic racism works, that we're either ostracizing on purpose or we are missing out on something. Applying that lens, that filter, and we're like, oh, okay. It illuminates for us, like okay, I, I see what's going on, um, and I think it, it's certainly in the in the hiring, and it's and it's not just in those roles uh, of the clinicians, like the physicians, like the the nursing. To you, to the point that you, I think, alluded to, even at, in the pharma side of things, we're talking clinical trials. When people are developing clinical trials. And they're asking them themselves, like, is this drug going to work or not? And looking at the demographics, who they're, um, the clinical trial participants, and you have to ask yourself the question of, well, who is missing? Like, that, that's a big question. That is the question that every single person who's developing clinical trial should be asking at the outset. And, and it's 2021. We're too far out into the scientific and innovative revolution. Like, we... We created a vaccine for a, a virus that just showed up. Like, that's ingenuity. That's incredible. And in that process, if people were thinking like, okay, we're creating this vaccine, what are the clinical trials looking like? Who are we administering the, the vaccine to in these clinical trials? And then beyond that, so that there is a sense of, uh, in the real world, Will this work for everyone? So building equity um, in at the very beginning of whatever the process is, and then seeing those those downstream implications. I think that like we have to approach it that way of 
that very that first step being one of equity. And then from there on, we can continue doing exactly everything we do, but it just means we've built in into the entire process the benefit for all instead of a select few. Yeah. Franz, let me tell you. Go ahead, Jay. I'm sorry. No, go. Get it. No, I'm just telling you, man, I'm bubbling over here. And normally I would give it right back to Jay, but I'm bubbling because you said something that echoes uh, the book by Alex Coban, uh, The Uncounted. And inside of that book, he asked two powerful questions. Who are you and how do you want to be counted? Who Mm -hmm. are you and how do you want to be counted? And when you talk about building that equity in in the beginning, so incredibly powerful. I got to tell you, I'm at a technical disadvantage right now because systematically I'm losing power. And so I'm just going to ask you, would you be willing to to rejoin us perhaps after the summer, maybe when we're deeper into this vaccination process? And maybe let's talk about more of the work that you do, what you are now seeing almost a year and a half into COVID. Would you be willing to rejoin us? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that would be awesome. You can find Franz on Twitter at Franz M. Bertaud. It's Franz, F-R-A-N-T-Z, middle initial M as in Mary, B-E-R-T-H-A-U-D. Franz M. Bertaud. Thank you ever so much. I really appreciate, hate to abbreviate you like that, but thank you for contributing just jewel after jewel after incredible jewel. I appreciate y'all so much. Thank you for this opportunity. Jay, you got quick mentions? Yeah, no, this has been great. And Torin, you read my mind. Yeah. Um, yep. So if you haven't checked out the Chad and Cheese um, LGBTQ for Dummies, five-minute listen, five-part series, go listen. It's all the, the questions you've always wanted to ask and haven't known how to uh, during Pride Month. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And I close reminding each and every one of you to share the pod with your digital tribe. Like, make sure you do what you can to create a better workplace, build better teams, better departments, better business units, the whole nine. We want corporate accorders to ring with equity and inclusion and belonging. We don't want them to continue to be places where we feel like we are fighting to be seen and and to be represented. For now, Jay and I are ghost. See ya. Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that asks you what you want to be when you grow up so you can graduate into retirement with a purpose and a passion, whether you're 25, 85, or any age in between. Gain actionable financial and mindset tips from your favorite authors, podcasters, and influencers to help you reach that exciting next chapter. Listen now and start building your path to financial freedom and reframing what retirement can mean to you. This is your host, Eric Brotman, reminding you, don't retire, graduate.